0: Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Cam. I'm a pastor with college students at Penn State, and my family and I worship here, and so occasionally I have the opportunity to be up here and to be able to give you Jesus. And so today we look to Jesus in Psalm 126. I wanted to uh, reiterate a point that Dan made last week about the Psalms as we continue to study them for a period of time, and we use them in different prayer. We use them uh, in worship to sing, that usually the psalms were written about a particular occasion. Something happened that had them pen the psalm, but they write it in such general language to allow for us to import any situation that that principle applies to in our lives. And so it's written very generally so that we might apply it specifically. And so as I read it, I want to give you a lens with which to see this. The Psalm 126 applies to anyone who has tasted the goodness of God, but that goodness feels like a distant memory. That you've tasted the goodness of God, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 through 6, is the real hardship of life, and you're trying to remember what it's like to remember God. And so let me read for us Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves With him. Let me pray. Spirit, we are dependent upon you for true understanding. Would you help us to understand with our minds and our intellects? But not only that, Lord, would you help us grasp you from the heart? And we are fully dependent on you for that. But we also trust that you will meet us by your word in all of our particular circumstances. And we pray this in your gracious name, Jesus. Amen. I remember when uh, Planet Earth came out. Uh, Planet Earth was this, uh, it was when HD was brand new. And so nothing was out in HD except Planet Earth came out and it was unbelievable. And so I remember people actually gathering to watch, and I'm not even into documentaries or nature uh, particularly. Um, Sorry, Ezra, he's shaking his head at me. Uh, but I remember the, the, the filmography, was, it was unbelievable. The, the videography is just gorgeous, and they would do time-lapses, and you'd see how the desert would change and you'd, it, when the, the rains came. Well, there's been a lot of good documentaries coming out about animals in the desert, and uh, one that I watched with my kids, which I asked them recently if they remembered it, getting ready for this week, and, and they said, no, we don't particularly remember that. But it was memorable to me that this, the most compelling stories are about these, these animal kingdoms and how they follow a particular family of animals as they go around. And in this one film, it's called The Elephant Queen, it's on Apple, and they followed this grandmother elephant who has her herd with her, and, and she's trying to save them from this drought. And so they have to travel over 200 miles to find water. And the most compelling part of that story is there's a baby elephant that's cute running around, this grandmother running around everyone. And uh, the baby's name is Mimi. And so you're following Mimi and you uh, are just wondering what's going to happen to them because there's kind of an ominous tone to the whole thing. And they are on the journey to save their lives because water for them was life. And they had no water. And so they started traveling and. Along this perilous journey, all these things happen to threaten their life and their fat stores start to decrease and they're about on the edge of their life and they finally get to where they're going and they show up and the stream beds are dry. That's what life feels like sometimes. That's what the psalmist is referring to in verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, they, they pray, like the streams of the Negev. The Negev was a river. The streams off of it were all the tributaries that went to it. But they, 11 months out of the year, they were dry. But one month a year, they would fill up. And they would team with life and give life to all those around. And so they're picturing this, that, that they know what it's like to get to the dry riverbed, but then to have God fill it up. The rains come and the dry valley becomes one full of life. What the psalmist is trying to say is that most of our lives, we live in the 11 months of the year. We live in the 11 months of the year, but we need to be filled up. We need that grace to come. We need God to fill us up again and remind us of what he's done before and what he's going to do again. And so that's what Psalm 126 does for us. It points to joy in the midst of the struggle. And that joy comes from looking at what God has done, but also looking at what God will do because of what he has done. Okay, so those are our two points today. How do we experience joy in the present sorrow? We experience joy when we have an eye on the past and an eye on the future. And so we'll begin with experiencing present joy with our eye on the past. So the Psalms are the hymn book of God's people, or were for over a thousand years. And hymns, like modern hymns, were written not just to express what it, what, is, what it is that we believe to be true, but they actually are meant to be formative. As Caleb was just telling us, as we sing the psalm, it actually forms who we are. It shapes what we believe. It shapes how we think. It shapes how we function. Because it shapes what we believe. All songs, or all psalms especially, are of restoration. So any hymn we sing is about restoration. It's about a people in need who have a God who meets them in their need. The psalmist here is pointing God's people to look to the restored past so they can experience joy in the present sorrow. So they can feel restoration when they remember. All right, so the situation, the specific situation that this psalm is pointing to is a pretty significant one one in God's people's history. So the Israelites, God's people in the Old Testament, um, they were captured by the nation of Babylon. So the Babylonians came in, defeated them, and what they would do is then take them off to Babylon to be enslaved to them and build their cities and build their country. And the Israelites were there for 70 years as slaves in Babylon. And it was one of the darkest times in Israel's history. Not not the only dark time, but one of the darkest times. And a really significant date, 537 BC, is when they returned from captivity. So 537 years before Jesus, they returned from their captivity in Babylon to what the text says is Zion. In verse 1, you see it, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. So Zion's kind of shorthand. We call it just like we call it the church, we refer, we're referring to Christians and God's people who are gathered. They would say Zion to refer to Israelites because they worshiped at Mount Zion. And so they're on their way back to Zion and they're remembering what God had done for them, that he brought them away from captivity, away from slavery to live free, to worship again. But what's interesting about the Psalm is that it wasn't written by the people who experienced that event. It was written by a later community reflecting on what God had done for them in the past. And it's significant because it's not just for the people it happened to. We don't just celebrate the things that happened to us. We celebrate what God has done generations before so we might know what he's like and so that we can trust that he's still like that. He's a God who remembers his people and restores them. That's who God is. And we remember God's work. And as we remember, it actually causes joy in our current moment. God in his word regularly commands us to remember. This is a a theme of the Old Testament. Because when we remember, we can live with present joy. In Deuteronomy 6:20, the question was basically asked, why do we do this? Like why do we gather for church? Why do we worship God? Why do we obey him? And God gives them an answer. He says, "When your children ask these questions, answer them with this. Remember, I am the God who saved them out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand." When we remember God, we find that our joy is restored. So you kids, sometimes you'll hear this from your parents, hopefully a little less. I think it's becoming less common. Um, but you're probably going to hear something along, along the lines of, just do it because I told you to. Like, why? You want to ask why all the time? We're like, just, just do it because, just do it, right? Because I told you to. Um, I was thinking this week about, you know, our kids growing into ages where we're going to have to manage screens, right? This is a constant battle for us adults, for the kids. And sometimes we tell them, we give them limits, and we say, you can't do this or you can't do that. And they just don't quite understand why. And part of it is we just have to tell them because we said so. But what they don't understand is that it's good for them, right? They don't understand some of the dangers that are behind that, some of the the joy-stealing that can happen if they're untethered, and do whatever and look at whatever they want. You see, God doesn't give us commands to remember as this burden of just I, because I said so. He does it because he wants our joy to be full. He wants us to experience more joy. And so he asks us to remember. If your sinful parents want good for you and their commands, how much more our God. And so this is why we study. This is why we get together on Sundays. This is why we get together in small groups. This is why we pray even as individuals in the mornings and the evenings. Because we study and read and remember the things that God has done. That's what the scriptures are. And the better we know them, the deeper we know them, the deeper our joy See, this is the story of Scripture all the way through. He restored Adam and Eve when they sinned. He restored humanity in Noah's time. He restored a people to himself in Abraham. He restored a people to him when he set up the the sacrificial system, the system of priests with Moses, so that they might approach God. He restored God's people when they didn't have a king, and they, they had no way of knowing what was good and what wasn't, and they were suffering, and so he restored to them a kingship. And finally, of course, he restored to them life and relationship with himself in Jesus. And so this is why we read the stories of Jesus. That's why we come back over and over to these stories, to remember them. And so when we look back on Jesus, we see one who was joy himself. And when we remember him, we see joy and we experience him and we experience joy. We experience joy when we look at him and see and remember that he entered the fray for us and with us in his incarnation, in his birth. We remember that he would temptation and he faced even, uh, even reviling from us, his own people. And we remember that he drank the bitter cup of wrath for us. We remember that he died for us. We remember that he was resurrected for us and that we remember that he's ascended to God to plead for us still. And we remember that we have joy. And so that's why we gather each week and we look to God and what he has done. What's interesting is Psalm 126, before it was Scripture, before it was recorded and used by God's people, inspired by God to be used in that way, they were just stories. Stories that they would share about their own history. It wasn't biblical history yet, it was just history. And their personal history. And so Psalm 126 kind of subtly tells us that not only do we look to the Bible stories to remember God, we also, we also look to what God has done in our lives in the present. Our lives in the past. And we share that with one another so we might be encouraged. One of the stories, uh, some of the stories that inspire us are those who've gone through great trial, and yet they were able to call out to God and praise Him for what He was doing, to see what He was doing. Uh, Corey Tenboom, many of you know her story that she was in concentration camps with her sister. In World War II, and her sister was this faithful Christian that kept praying and kept her faith alive, and they smuggled a Bible in, and they read it together, and they read it with their bunkmates, and her sister made her thank God for everything and made her thank God for the fleas that they had. And her sister, Corey, she said she refused to thank God for the fleas for so long because they were miserable. What she didn't know until years later is that those fleas kept their captors away because they didn't want them and kept them from great harm, greater harm that would come to them. And so we read these stories and we tell each other the stories and we tell each other stories of our lives and we gather to do that as much as we do to read the stories in the scriptures. And we do that especially when we're in the 11 months of life that are dry and we need to remember When Kayla and I first got married, we had a hard time, like you do sometimes when you do something brand new and two people come together and try to make life together and they start running into all the things of life that many of you know. And as we were having that hard time, there was somebody that gave us some great advice, which was to make a history wall and to literally put in front of us the history of what God has done in our lives. And so that when we were feeling anxious, when we were struggling, that we could look to that wall and see what God has done. That's what we're doing together when we gather. This is what they're doing in verses one through three. They're remembering what God has done. They're remembering when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those in a dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. You can just picture this community walking away from captivity, just all smiles. Full of joy. So much so that they would shout to the nations around them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. But it takes a turn. Looking at the past at God's work brings great joy, but there's greater joy still to be had when we look to the future. And that's what happens in verses four through six. That joy produced when we look forward to what God will do based on what he's done in the past, that we know he's gonna do it again because he's done it before. And so we experience present joy with an eye on the future as well. So the Psalm shifts They're singing about what God has done, but they're in that 11 months of life, and they have to keep going. Life doesn't stop for them, right? A friend of ours was sharing the other day that she has young kids at home and uh, used to be very successful in business world, and she's chosen to take a step back from that and stay home with the kids, and she feels like a failure every day, that she... uh, Every time she tries something, she just can't rise to the occasion. She can't be enough for them. She can't do this. She can't do that. And she just feels like she's failing all the time. But once in a while, you know, you're home with your kids, and you're trying to do something great and make their day great. And you're going to, like, fulfill all their desires. And so you finally have the energy to do things like help, let them bake muffins that's going to blow up the kitchen. And you're like, it's okay. It's going to be a good mess. It's going to be fun. I'm going to give them everything they want. I'm going to give them uh, the show that they wanted to watch, and they've been waiting to watch. And you do, you you have a successful day and you do everything for them. And she described a day like this. And she said at the end of the day, her kids were basically looking at her like, what's next? No matter how good life is, we're always looking for what's next. And the Psalm actually affirms part of that. And it says, there is something more coming, that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. There's more yet to come. The current uh, situation, life isn't enough. So look at verses four through six. Restore our fortunes, O Lord. So they go from saying, you've restored us. Thank you, Lord, for restoring us. Restore us still. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. They're getting a vision for the future. Of what will happen. Because in the middle of these 11 months, life doesn't slow down. It doesn't matter if you have a death in the family or a birth in the family. It doesn't matter if you've lost your job or you got a promotion. Life doesn't slow down, and everything comes at you and comes at you. And they're praying. This is a kind of a gritty psalm. It's talking about how to actually function in real life, in the real world, when life isn't the way it's supposed to be, when everything is frustrating. I went on a mission trip with our, our students on campus. We left and go to Pittsburgh to the inner city and we were serving there. And uh, as we were serving, I didn't bring any soap. And so I had to, you know, got pretty dirty. We needed some, some soap. So I went and got some soap, came back, uh, got clean, felt good. A couple days later, I had a rash all over my body, right? Here I am trying to serve God, trying to do what's faithful, trying to do good things. And I'm all itchy trying to do it. And I'm all miserable trying to do it. And this is life. Even when we try to do the good things, life is frustrating. It's actually the story that the Bible tells us right from Genesis 3. That we're going to try to work in relationships, in our jobs, and all of those things are going to frustrate us. And those frustrations aren't going to go away in the current moment. And when that happens, we look to the future and we look to a day when that won't be true anymore. When we won't be frustrated in our work. We're doing good work. We're sowing the seeds of the kingdom, but we're doing it through weeping. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. It's helpful to look back on the past, but it's essential to look forward. We need a vision for what is to come to keep us going in the present time, because the sadness won't go away, the frustrations won't go away. We need a vision for what is to come. There was an opportunity a few years back when we were looking to do campus ministry somewhere, and uh, there was an opportunity that popped up in Fargo, North Dakota. And uh, some of you, most of you have never been to Fargo, so you think it's a terrible place. Well, it's actually this gorgeous place and fun place and wonderful place. And uh, we went up there, but they couldn't get anybody to go start a campus ministry up there. And so they uh, picked their best visionary and they said, all right, we're going to send you with Cam. It was not me, who was the visionary. And they sent us there for three days, and they made me basically hang out with him for three days, imagining what could come of this ministry of this place. And so we walked campus for three days, and he would walk around and say, man, this place is amazing. There's only two campus ministries that are active with 30,000 students. He's like, they're the kind of students that are really fun. They take school seriously, but not too seriously. Um, Things can really happen here. And they've got this hub in the middle of campus, and the students are coming in and out of it all the time. You have access to them. He's like, you can have a big effect here. And so I left that weekend excited, and I'm ready to go, right? So I come home, and I tell Kayla about it. And so they fly, Kayla and I, to Fargo, North Dakota in January. And actually we fall in love with it and we think it's this amazing place. And so uh, we want to go. But then reality comes, right? You get a vision for something, you want to start something, you want this new job or whatever it is and you, you get there, then you actually have to do the hard work and the grind. And it's easy then in that grind to lose sight of what God's actually building through you and in you in your family and your work. But the good news is that God is not letting us forget what is coming. He's not letting us forget uh, the future that we want is not only something we desire, it's something that will come true. It's guaranteed. And so we look no further than Jesus who came in the middle of that fray and given us reason to have joy in the middle of the difficulty. You see, Jesus, when he came, he came to forgive sins, but he did more than that. What he did is he forgave sins and he started healing people. And he was giving them a vision for what is to come. That one day, those who are blind will see. Those who are sick will be healed. Those who are lame will walk. He's showing us a picture of his kingdom. And so we look to Jesus, not only for forgiveness of sins, we look to him for a future that we desire. And that future actually, that picture moves us toward the kingdom and toward that work that's so hard to do. We're a broken people. We're broken, not just the church, but the world. Broken mentally. We can't even trust our own thoughts on things. We're broken bodily. We're broken sexually. All of it. But Jesus says at the end of time, in Revelation 21, 5, he has come to make all things new. And then the picture he gives us, he doesn't just say words. He gives us a picture of a new city with a new people. We aren't just these spirits floating around in heaven in the clouds. They're people with bodies who are living in an economy, who are building um, thought systems and philosophies and, and science that all follows God's kingdom and desires God's kingdom. Well, what he's picturing is earth, just restored to what it's supposed to be. And the picture we have here in the psalm is that those things that we are doing now are being restored or redeemed into the very kingdom that we inherit with Jesus. In verse 6, you see it. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seeds for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. If we look to the past alone, we look and see that we are blessed and saved, restored in Jesus, and nothing can take that away. But often that leads us to a mindset of just kind of holding on to that, and that's all we've got until, until this all goes away. But it's not all going away. God's doing something with us. He's building something with us. As we catch a vision for that future, we start moving toward it. There's a pastor in the PCA, Um, He's African-American, and that's significant because we just ordained in our denomination our 65th uh, black pastor out of over 2,000, and if you're even okay at math, you know that's a very small percentage, right? And so it's a a widely, and there's a historical reason for this, but mostly white denomination that's changing slowly. Um, But he was sharing with a bunch of other white PCA ministers, and he was sharing with them why he is in a denomination where he feels out of place. And he said, a lot of my friends who are black pastors in black churches ask me regularly, like, what are you doing over there? Like, why are you still doing that? Because they see it's hard for him. And people don't really get what he's doing. They don't really get how he sees things because he sees it from a different perspective. And he says to us, God tells us in Revelation that we are worshiping with every tribe, nation, and tongue. They're all standing before the throne together. And he said, we got to get there somehow. We look to the future in our present hardship and full of sorrow and full of weeping and full of frustration because we're still living in a presently broken world, but with an eye on what God is going to do, and he directs us, that directs us how we're going to spend our time on this earth. We start moving toward the things that are good, the things that God tells us are good and will last. Basically, he shows us that it's worth it. You're going to sow in tears. No matter what you do, it's going to be frustrating. There's going to be tears that come, sorrow that comes, but is it worth it? And the Bible gives us a picture that it's all worth it. And so we think about it. We think about what God has done, and we remember him. We think about what he's going to do. And all those things help help us live in the present time. Not as bystanders, but people who are building the kingdom. What I love about this, as we live this out, it's written to us together. All these psalms are not individualistic. They're not for you or for you. They're for us. And you think about what are the sheaves that we're carrying into the kingdom? What are, this is talking to the church. So what is the work the church is doing that God is, is restoring the earth through. It's certainly people's souls that he's restoring. But it's also this church building he's restoring. He's restoring the thought systems of our lives. He's restoring everything that we do. And may we keep looking to that future to catch a vision of how he's doing that. I'll end with this story the, um, some of you might recognize the, the name Jim Hatch. And the reason you recognize that name, if you recognize it at all, is because it's, it's Owen's church planting coach. Well, my wife and I met him in our second year of marriage years ago uh, through another friend. We were trying to figure out what we we're gonna do in ministry. And they're like, oh, you should meet this church planting guy. He's pretty cool. And so we meet Jim Hatch and he's this older guy who's just full of wisdom and full of mercy. And um, when we were meeting him, we're literally, my wife and I are weeping. We've just found out that week that we, uh, with our first pregnancy, had a miscarriage, and it was utterly devastating. And as we're meeting with him, he has the wherewithal to ask, "Like, I see that, I see that you're crying, and we can't help but tell him the story." Right? This completely strange man to us, and he has such mercy to look at us and say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I remember the, the healing, the restorative nature of those words. This is not the way it's supposed to be. It didn't fix everything. It didn't make what was wrong right. But it allowed us to have joy in the midst of our tears. To know this wasn't the way it's supposed to be, meaning this isn't the way it's going to be. We're going through a lot of things. You're only gonna go through more things. All those things give us a taste of the kingdom, but we gotta keep our eyes on God, what he's done for us, and what he's going to do. And it'll give us joy in present sorrow. Let me pray for us. Lord, we come to you this morning needing words of life. And Lord, you name the reality, and they feel that feels hard. But you've named it so that we might actually know that this is the way it's always going to be. So we might take steps forward to live faithfully, knowing that we're forgiven because of what you've done. And knowing that we won't always feel like this. That our tears will turn to pure joy. And that our joy will be laughter and singing no longer sorrow and tears. We pray that you haste the day that you come and make that true.